So I'm going to talk about uh, evolution and revolution today. And, um, and, and I like those two terms because they're rather dramatic. And, and, and how it sort of happened to me. And, and, and what changed and what didn't. So the Zen people say, um, in the beginning of your practice, there's the mountains and the trees and the river. And so at the beginning of my practice, uh, which started in 1979, from 77 to 79, I was in a mild state of depression for two years. Not quite sure why. Everything was supposed to be really good. I had worked my way up from a part-time salesman to a manager of a retail store, which tended to do the most business. And in 76, I got the biggest bonus of all the other managers, which made me feel like really good. I had a new car, polyester shirt, (laughs) nice hair, girlfriend, and cool shoes. And it was just like, you know, it just wasn't going to get much better than that. And then for some reason, I went into this sort of state of depression, which I think was sort of a subconscious paradigm clash of the way things were supposed to be, the way things could be, and the way things are. And I didn't have a vocabulary or personal experience that would allow me to reconcile or resolve the issues. I wasn't smart enough. And, and, uh, and that was okay, because ignorance is bliss. So in, in 1979, after two years of this sort of melancholy, I decided to uh, investigate uh, religion to see if that would add something positive to my lifestyle. So the book, World Religions, Houston Smith, the chapter of Buddhism, I found, I found my religion. So then I found a meditation center so I could practice my religion. And, and the evolution that occurred in the first couple years of my practice was a personal growth, a sort of personal maturity, if you will, finding out more about myself than I had ever thought was possible because I was rather superficial, but happy and pleasantly superficial. You know, I had been a Republican for a few years. I was a member of the NRA, I knew exactly how the world was supposed to be, as do most Republicans. <laughs> and, and I was happy in my ignorance. And, and then the problem with evolving as a spiritual person is you start to question stuff. So I started to question stuff. And, and, and I don't know if I was ready for all the answers that were going to be coming. So I started to question why I was a Republican And then I decided that I should probably be a Democrat. Because after all, I was going to be a Buddhist. (laughs) And and then I decided maybe I should just be an independent and be in the middle. Because the Buddha kept talking about the middle path. And not committing yourself one way or the other. Then I reflected on the the NRA. And I said to myself, well, you know... uh, They have some good points and they have some bad points, but I don't know if I need to be a member. And when I went to one of their conventions, I had sort of long hair and I had blue jeans and a T-shirt that had something written on the front of it. And I was like the only one there that had that. And they went through all my bags to see if I was carrying weapons. And I'm thinking, (laughs) you know, this is the NRA. (laughs) Why do they care if I'm carrying weapons, you know? But so after that experience, I realized I really didn't fit in there either, so I stopped paying my dues. And, and then as I continued to evolve in my evolution, I'm going to call this the horizontal line, as I continued to evolve in my evolution, I started to question things around me that I had taken for granted my whole life. And, and the first big question was, uh, is there a God? Now, being a Buddhist, it's not a big issue. Uh, you don't need to say there is or isn't. Um, but I'd been brought up Lutheran. I had money in my wallet that said, in God we trust. 
the Pledge of Allegiance talked about God, all these things. And I said, have I ever spoken to God? And I had to reflect on the fact that I had never spoken personally to God. Had I ever had a direct experience of God? And I had to say, I really never had a direct experience of God. So then I came to the conclusion that my whole relationship with God was an intellectual one, a conceptual one. And then I said to myself, what would happen, now that I've given up being a Republican and a member of the NRA, what would happen if I decided not to believe in God? And this was a big decision on my part because, you know, I had seen movies and read books that lightning will strike you dead or you'll go to hell forever. So in coming to the compromise of not believing in God, I said to myself, I'm going to not believe in God and I'm not going to not believe there isn't a God. I'm going to sort of be noncommittal and say God can take care of himself without me believing in him. If people believe in God, I will listen and I will and I will applaud and support. And if people don't believe in God, I will listen and I will applaud and support. But maybe from this day forth, I'll just be into the place of, I don't know. So once I firmed all that up intellectually and decided that I don't know, this huge burden was lifted off my shoulders. I, I found that was, it, it, it was a sort of freedom in not having to believe or not having not to believe, of simply just not knowing. So then I continued to evolve and purge myself of useless concepts. And, and I said to myself, I wonder how it would feel to question America. Does America really exist? And if it does exist, what is it? And where does the heart or soul of America reside? And I can remember on a Memorial Day in Westwood Village in that giant cemetery, they had all these American flags in front of each of the gravestones. And I can remember looking at them, and there were like hundreds, if not thousands of them. And, and I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's, that's the concept, that American flag. It stands for... America and, and the beginning and all the things we fought for and all the things we believe in and all the things that are good. And, and all those people died for that concept because they believed in it so much they were willing to give up their life for the concept. And it just sort of tripped me out. I, got, I just went into another place and go, wow, you know, humans, when they really commit themselves to a concept, they can go all the way. And, and, and their life becomes less important and the concept becomes more important. And my limited knowledge of Buddhism at that time led me to believe that Buddhism was just a concept that we'd use like a raft to get to the other shore and then we'd even jettison the concept. We didn't let go of that because the concept was no longer useful. We had achieved our goal. So I said to myself, you know, human, living on Earth, being in America, being an independent, and I went through all these ways of identifying myself. And I said to myself, do I need all that identity to validate who I am and what I'm doing? And so this question of, of, of who I was started to be really important. And there weren't any good answers. Now, I could talk to my mom, and she would tell me who I was, a slacker who didn't take out the trash and make his bed. But that was just one of me. And then I could talk to my sisters and brothers, and they would give me sort of the sibling answer. And then I could talk to friends and enemies, and they would tell me who I am. And, and all these people were just sort of like, yes, this is who I think you are. But when it came to define who I thought I was, I lacked vocabulary. Again, I, I was speechless, if you will. But my evolution continued in spite of all these non-answers. I just kept getting deeper and deeper, and my little limited universe kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
which started to include more and more things that I might not agree with or believe in or understand, but those tended to be part of my universe as well. And I had to come to a place of acceptance with those as being a natural phenomena, part of my life. But still, the revolution hadn't occurred yet. This was just the evolution, and as my teacher had said, once you start to meditate, your evolution speeds up dramatically. And it may never slow down. You may just continue to evolve at a rapid rate, whether you're ready to or not. For the last few days, I've been listening to Ram Das, one of my favorite teachers, Richard Alpert. This is an audio book. Uh, of his talks that were, he gave in 1996, I believe, when he was 65. He's talking about aging and maturity. And, and he, before his stroke, was the best storyteller of any spiritual teacher and always used himself as an example and, and, and was not always successful in what he was doing or trying to do. And so one of my favorite stories about evolution and revolution was when he was back in the early 70s up in the San Francisco area and he was giving a talk. And his audience was pretty much comprised of 20 to 25 year olds, uh, rather hairy with white clothes. And he was sitting in, on his chair and, and he was talking and, and right in front row was this lady of about 70 who wore very professional lace-up shoes in black and a straw hat with fake fruit. And, and she was listening to Ram Dass talk about his psychedelic experiences, and for some reason, she kept nodding yes. Now, Ram Dass evaluated this woman as have, having never taken anything maybe stronger than sherry in her whole life, and yet somehow she understood the complexities of the evolution of consciousness as, as evolving through psychedelic use. So he decided to see if he could get her to nod no, and he kept talking about even more esoteric experiences that he had, and she was right there with him all the way. So at the end of his talks, he oftentimes would just hug people who lined up, and she got in line, and so it was her turn and he looked at her and said, I have to know, did you follow what I had to say? Do you know what I was talking about? She said, yes, and you, and you said it so well, thank you. And then he looked at her and said, but how do you know? How do you know all these things that I talked about? And she looked at him and said, I crochet. Which is like the perfect answer. <laughs> that we can alter our consciousness in many ways. <laughs> so she had evolved and become part of the revolution through her crocheting. So I, I started to see that I was evolving, and, and now because of my breath counting practice of two years, I was starting to have little transcendental experiences. And what I mean by that is I was starting to transcend ego on occasion and sort of leave it behind and, and come to the place of direct experience. And, and when you come to the place of direct experience, you've left the finger pointing and now you're looking at the moon and now you are the moon. And as soon as you say, my, my, well, everything collapses and you're just observing it again. But until you say my, my, you, you are actually involved in the process of existence in a very direct way. And I thought that was fascinating, but again, I lacked the vocabulary to talk about it. And so I would ask people what they experienced, and they would tell me, and, and it didn't make any sense at all. So again, I, I hadn't evolved uh, enough to have any kind of intellect that could understand all this stuff. So I decided to go on a reading binge. And, and the beginning of my reading binge was to read about people who had gone on meditation retreats and read about their experiences, like journals or books. And at the time, this was the early 70s, um, 
well, no, late 70s, early 80s, at the time there were quite a few books out of people writing and talking about their experiences. So I sort of vicariously experienced what they had experienced, but they were able to define it for me in a way that I could understand. So I, I sort of needed them to give me some ideas of how to look at my own experiences. And then I found out about commentary. And commentary is something that, that very well-read and educated men and women write when they read a sutra or a Buddhist text, and then they, then they write about what they think it means. And, and so I hadn't really gone into too many of the original Buddhist texts because I couldn't understand what they were talking about, and the Zen stuff left me cold. It was just like a bunch of poetry that had no beginning and no end. Uh, so through the commentaries, I was able to get a handle on what the sutras were trying to tell me, what the Buddha was trying to say. Because, because I, again, I, I lacked this sort of educational component. I just, I just wasn't smart enough to get it. Part of the evolutionary process of meditation, though, exercises our intuition. And our intuition is something we rarely use anymore because our intellect is so powerful and takes care of most of the work. But the intuition is our innate intelligence. It's the intelligence that we were born with and carry with us all the time. And if it's not exercised, it's, it's hard to, to understand this stuff because this stuff is, is, is both ultimate and relative at the same time, both intellectual and intuitive. And if you read a whole lot of books and never exercise your intuition, you're going to miss the point. If you only exercise your intuition and never read a lot of books, you won't be able to talk about it or understand it intellectually, but you'll, the experience will still be the same. So I found through my meditation practice and I found through reading commentary and experiences that other people have had that both my intuition and my intellect were starting to grow. And I was able to start to see clearly these, these strange, strange concepts that were counter to everything I had done or understood to be true before meditation. So now we come to this, this evolutionary part where we have the paradigm clash, where you have the new information and you have the old information and they are fighting each other. And who's going to win? Well, if you stop meditating and walk away, the old information is going to win. And you'll just be pretty much the same as you always were, except you'll have some new experiences to think about and maybe talk about. But if you decide to go move forward, if you decide to, to head on into the uncharted territory you're about to enter, uh, then all these new paradigms uh, become useful and, and rather interesting. One point to keep in mind is that you will lose friends and family if you decide to leave and go off into the new future because friends and family aren't going to go with you and they're going to think you're a bit odd and some of them may think you are now taken over by the devil. <laughs> so they're going to want to do an intervention and an exorcism on you. And you'll say, no, no, everything just exists the same as it did before, except differently. But they won't get that either. And, and so I had either the courage or the insanity or the foolishness of saying, okay, I'm going to see where this leads me. Because this is really cool. I already sort of know how the other part works. You know, you work really hard, you get a bonus, you wear cool clothes, and it keeps you happy up to a point. But then you always come to the place where the happiness isn't there anymore. So I kept going, and now the revolution began, where I was questioning everything and wondering how uh, I had ever believed all the stuff I had believed before. And one of the most insidious stories was one that I got when I was in grade school. And it was, it was George Washington and it was an example of telling the truth. He, he cut down the cherry tree, and they asked him, did you cut down the cherry tree? And he said, yes, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the cherry tree. And then I was reading that that was a lie, that he never cut down the cherry tree. 
that they made it up to give an example of truth. (laughs) And so this really started to bother me because I'm going to be part of the revolution now. What is truth, I said to myself. Well, truth at a relative level turns out to be anything you want it to be. It's created by consensus. If enough people believe it to be true, it is true. That's why it's really important to pick where you're going to live. Because if you live in certain states, their truth is different than in other states. Even small communities, their truth is different than in other communities. Religions have an issue with truth as well, because they all have the truth. But it's all different. And then it comes to your truth. And, and what is your truth? Is your truth what you've come to understand or what you've come to experience? I find what experience does, it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence in the fact that what seems to be true now may not be true later, but right now it seems to be true. So there was a, a video I just saw on Facebook of a guy in Hawaii who wants to be a mayor. And he was caught jaywalking by the police, and they had sort of a physical argument, and he tried to run away. And they tased him, and he flopped on the ground, and then they handcuffed him. And I'm thinking, his truth is just a little messed up. That, that in the context of the police and him, there was some kind of truth that was not obvious to him. And, and after having been a police chaplain for six years, a volunteer police chaplain, not on the payroll, I came to understand that everybody has their own special little truth of the way it's going to be, but sometimes it has to be overridden by the people in charge. For instance, if I get a ticket for speeding and I'm at the side of the road and the officer says, do you have a driver's license? And I say yes, and I show him the driver's license, and he says, is this you? Theoretically, I could say, no, this is not me. This symbolizes who I used to be. <laughs> But I don't know if that truth is going to get me very far. So, so sometimes we have to bow to the truth of others just to get along, just to create a little harmony, just not to freak them out. And so the revolution happens internally, and now you don't want to freak everybody out because you've come to this other place where you see clearly how absurd this life is and yet how important it is at exactly the same time. The absurdity starts right at birth. We're born to die. What's the point? I don't know. We have seven billion people. What's the point? In a hundred years, they'll all be dead. Where are we going to put them? There'll be 15 billion then. Where are we going to put them? We're going to have to find another planet just as a graveyard. There's a lot of people dying. How can you take it too seriously? You work really hard. You amass a fortune. You have a wonderful lifestyle. You get Alzheimer's and can't remember it's yours. What's the point? So I started to see it this way, and that's how I recognized the revolution. I was going through this internal revolution of awareness that I was starting to see things perhaps the way other people had seen them long, long ago. And now my job was to sort of integrate all this new information in a way that allowed me to seem normal. So that's when I started the ordination process. I thought to myself, you know, here I have an opportunity to be ordained as a Buddhist monk in Los Angeles. How far out is that? And I will be given permission to be a bit odd because I'm a Buddhist monk. And they're not normal, or they would dress differently. And they wouldn't live. I've lived in the meditation center now for 21 years. Who would live in a meditation center for 21 years? Wouldn't he just eventually move out? Yes, most people do. I'm still there. It seems to still work for me. 
But I'm given permission to do that. Sometimes I'm vegetarian. People say, well, he's a monk. Sometimes I eat cheeseburgers. Well, he must be a southern monk. <laughs> One of those Theravada guys, you know. And, and so you, you're sort of looking at this kind of stuff. And, and this allowed me to, to continue my journey, to continue the evolution and revolution of my life, to, to finally come to a place where the mountains and the trees and the river were form and concept. That there was form and there was a concept that I would apply to them because there is no such thing as a mountain. If you talk to people who speak different languages, they'll give you different words for that same form. And then, at one point in my evolution revolution, everything became emptiness. That nothing existed independently. Everything was interconnected and interdependent. Now, for me, this was a radical, radical concept because I had always felt separate. I had never been cursed with, a lo- with loneliness, though. I'm so lucky. I appreciate the fact that aloneness on occasion can occur. Not in Koreatown, but other parts of the world, <laughs> you can actually walk around and not see anybody. How wonderful is that? So... I wondered if anybody had written about this experience of interconnectedness and interdependence. I call this enlightenment. And I found someone who had written a book about how all things are connected. And his name is Ken Wilber. And he is loved or hated depending on how you look at him. But he's the first guy that I was able to read who said, this is how all things are connected. And you have the vertical and horizontal, you have quadrants, and things fit in here and things fit there, and it's really complicated. I don't fully understand it, but I'm assuming he does, and it's a wonderful model and paradigm of how all things are interconnected and interdependent. But in the direct experience of that, you have no intellectual model necessary. It's simply opening your heart to the fact that you and everything are connected. Not the same. Not one. Those are Christians that say that. The Buddhists would say interconnected, interdependent, unity, community. Those are really important words, I think. Not uniformity. And, and so as I read Ken Wilber, trying to understand what he was talking about, understanding some of it, I started to get this intellectual model now that went along with some of my meditation experiences of the interconnection and interdependence. I continued to meditate. I continued to evolve. I continued to participate in the revolution of my consciousness. And, and all of a sudden, all those mountains and streams and trees that were empty became mountains and trees and streams again. That you end up where you start. Um, it might have been Aldous Huxley who said, I, I finally came to, a fact, to the fact that I was a fool. And just before I died, I realized I had never gone any further than simply being a fool. Now, in between the first fool and the last fool, there was sort of a lot of evolution and revolution and understanding. But do we really change that dramatically as humans? If we have all these experiences, do we really start to, to take on different shapes and forms and mind states? Maybe mind states. Maybe we do all the same stuff we did before, but we do it in a different way, which may or may not be obvious to people who are observing us. Maybe what we've done in, in some remarkable way has changed the way we relate to everything. That we've created entirely new forms of relationship with all the things that are in our life. And, and so, as Ram Dass would talk about, he says he's, he's still neurotic, but now, he's, now he sort of greets them and invites them in to see how they're doing. And so he created a different relationship with his neuroses. <coughs> I was able to create a different relationship with my mother by being her son again and not, not being a rebel or a nonconformist or not liking what she did because she was the old way and I wanted the new way. 
It was just so comfortable to go back in and meet her expectations. But in order to meet her expectations, I had to be uh, less of who I needed to be, which turned out to be maturity. Ram Dass talks about being somebody and then evolving into being nobody. So at the beginning of my life, I, it was really important for me to look and be and act and think a certain way because that was my definition of being somebody. But as I aged and meditated and read books about alternative lifestyles and ways of viewing the world, it wasn't as important. It became less and less important. And what started to become more important was the the process and the evolution of becoming nobody. That, That being nobody allows you to feel pretty comfortable in any situation you find yourself in. When you're somebody you demand certain conditions to be comfortable. So this evolution and revolution is real, but it's an internal one. I don't know if it can apply to the world around us. The world around us is pretty much messed up and always will be and always has been. Somebody complained about the Buddhists as not being engaged in changing the world because they realized the world was ultimately going to die as was everybody on the world. And, and I disagree completely with that. I, for me, a Buddhist is someone who, who doesn't change the world, but changes the suffering in the world. And if people are hungry and homeless, uh, then they address that. If there's a man starving and a man fasting, the Buddhist feeds the man who's starving. So, so far, so good. Uh, The evolution, revolution continues. My mind state continues to evolve. I include more and more things. I see the absurdity of the world. I see the paradox of good and bad living side by side in the same event. And, And my response to that is simply to smile and go, how else could it be? And then I go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Does anybody have any comments or questions on what I've said today? How how is your revolution coming? Is it, yeah. I think I uh, listening to you talk about it today. I think I realized when I was a child that the interconnectedness, not just of every person, but me and the, every star and atom and everything in the universe. And that everything I've learned since has confused the heck out of me. And just in my practice in the last couple of years, I've started to get back in touch with that. And uh, dealing with relatives that are dying, sitting with them while they're dying, <clears throat> realizing that that's what I'm going back to. It seems that, that human life is... Uh, has kind of pulled me apart from that interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. And so being with people who are dying and getting back in touch with that interconnectedness made me feel that when I die, um, maybe I will finally uh, realize that interconnectedness. Full. Yeah. It's no. confusing being a human being. Perhaps. <laughs> I, 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 you're right on in the beginning where we really are interconnected and interdependent. There's no difference between us and everything else. And in order for us to survive, we have to be made separate. And so all of a sudden we recognize we have a hand that's, that's really separate from us, and we can use it to manipulate the world, and we have feet. And then all of a sudden mom shows up. And mom wasn't there in the beginning. It was just the universe would feed you when you were hungry. And now mom's feeding you when you're hungry. So slowly but surely, we evolve and separate from the world around us. And, and, and some people think, well, I want to go back to that sort of primordial innocence because it was so wonderful and gratifying. Uh, but we can't go back. The only way we can ever experience it again is to transcend our separateness and find the unity or the interconnection. So it's, it's not a descending, but it's a transcending. And the spiritual path of meditation practice does allow us to transcend and reconnect in a very experiential way, direct experience without having to go through intellect. 
and and wow and you're right now then you say well wouldn't it be cool if we could die experiencing the interconnectedness and interdependence and and everybody is going to die in their own special unique way and and some people are going to kick and scream and say it's too soon to go i was talking yesterday at leisure world and i said you know there's still a few things i want to do before i go so one guy says what do you want to do I said, well, you know, I, I want to feed the cats. And, uh, and then I went through a whole list of just dumb stuff. And I said, you know, nothing really important. <laughs> I don't have a bucket list. You know, I just feed the cats. You know, I, it, it'd be nice to read that last book just before you die. I don't know what good that would be, but, you know. Uh, and, and maybe see, you know, uh, Lucy, the new movie that just came out. <laughs> So, so nothing special, you know, uh, and, and then just die. So I'm really lucky that, I, that, that all these the desires to, to do and be have sort of diminished a bit, either through age or practice. And, and it's, life is just fine the way it is, you know. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. Tired, you nap. So, cool. Thank you for that. That was good, yeah. That's good. Richard, um, you, you said something about um, Buddhists not being engaged. Yes, um, and, and I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit more about that because I have a friend. I'm think, none of my friends meditate. And they think it's just something peculiar that I do. And I gave a book on, kind of like a Buddhist one-on-one to a really good friend of mine. And she said she thought I was a bunch of rubbish. So, so the way to be happy is to get rid of craving and aversion. So if I don't want anything then I have no motivation, and everything's perfect. So like, how do you reconcile acceptance and craving and aversion with still being engaged in motivating and not being like a Buddhist doormat? Yeah, this, this is really good. Uh, it's like, you know, we have this desire to achieve nirvana. And this desire leads us to all the conditions necessary in our practice to finally come to that place of nirvana, but as long as we still desire nirvana, it will never happen. So that's like the last desire to go. Hopefully it'll self-destruct, but we don't know. So how do you live in a world where you're not supposed to have craving and desire and, and get anything done at all? Uh, I, I think at, at the relative level, we just have to see that it's, it's a, one of the conditions uh, of our human experience that our desires and cravings lead us in certain directions, oftentimes satisfied temporarily by what we've come to conclude is what we need. You know, if I'm hungry, if I eat, then I won't have the hunger for a while. And so the desire to eat makes perfect sense. It also keeps you alive, which is really good too. So it's a good desire to have because being alive allows you to come to the Dharma, practice it, and achieve nirvana once the last desire for nirvana goes away. The desire to help people is an interesting one because uh, sometimes we help people because it's the right thing to do. But in Buddhism, it doesn't work because we don't have a right and wrong in Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism has skillful and unskillful, more suffering and less suffering. So we lack a divine lawgiver to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Um, For me... If someone is suffering, that's, that's the key. Because Buddhism only talks about why we suffer and how to end suffering. And so if someone is suffering from no matter what, the Buddhist response to that should be, how can I help? Now, if, if they just need a dollar for a cup of coffee, one way to do it. You know? and, and, um, um, but sometimes people need, for instance, somebody to listen to them. They have a story they want to share, important story, and, and nobody wants to listen. And so the Buddha says, in order to decrease your suffering, I'll listen to the story. Not outside, but inside, <coughs> silently thinking that. And, and so in our, in our own subtle little ways, you know, we can go about changing the world based on less suffering or more suffering, not the right thing or the bad thing. I, I was talking about feeding cats and... Uh, and, and so this guy got really upset with me. He says, he says, how can you feed cats when so many people are hungry? 
aren't people more important than cats? And there was this silence. And he goes, well? And I said, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) It's an old Jack Benny line, but I needed the change. (laughs) So it's just like, yeah, so we, so, so we all pick our stuff. Somebody's feeding the humans, somebody's feeding the cats, somebody's feeding the dogs, and, and we all pick our stuff. And, and collectively, we make a difference. For one person to make a difference, they'd probably have to live a thousand years. You know, It takes a long time to make a difference. But you get a thousand people together, they can make a difference. Is the difference forever? The difference is very temporary. Will they be hungry again if you don't teach them to fish? Yeah. Even if you do, do teach them to fish, the drought might come, and the water might go away. So it's just like, it's just, how can I help people suffer less now? And then we walk away. We, we, we don't say, I failed. We don't say, I succeeded. We don't say, I'm right or wrong. We show up, we do what we can, and then we leave. That's my technique and my philosophy. But you're not going to convince anybody that meditation is a good thing to do. Because it's too difficult and too boring. And it's for the rest of your life. It's not like they're going to meditate for two weeks and everything will be different. Like this woman in particular, she's telling me about her kids. I'm going, oh, you should really meditate. It would just help you so much. But you can't. You just have to step back. Yeah. I think with kids it probably wouldn't help. Well, not they. I'm, I'm kidding. No, I know. There's no help. Right? Even with her, I don't think. Kids are kids, you know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You said something, you made a statement reach a point, you're speaking a little softly for my ears. Yes. Yeah, I, I, number one, it's not a wonderful place, this, this transcendence. Why is that the case? Because there's nothing there to evaluate it. It's just a place. If, if ego would determine if it's good or bad. But if you transcend ego, then it's just a place. Okay. Would it be nice to live there? No. It wouldn't be nice to live there because you wouldn't get anything done. And we are stuck on this earth with this body that needs constant maintenance. And there are many things to do to keep ourselves alive. So we can take time out. We have 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening. It's nice to experience or get close to these transcendental states, these transcendent states. But they're not useful necessarily on earth. What they're useful for is the option. Now you know there's more to life than news, weather, and sports. You've seen the possibility. You've seen that that we were given much more than we think we have. And yet we don't know how to access it. When we do access it for any period of time, what happens, generally speaking, is you become more intuitive and more heartfelt about the things that you are experiencing which will not make your life better. It will simply give you more things to do in your life. When you see people who are uncomfortable or unsatisfied or who are suffering. And now because you've, you've sort of opened yourself up to the possibilities of alternative states of consciousness and ways of being, you have given up some of the limitations that allow you to turn away from it and say, it doesn't matter, it's not me. Now it's always matters, and now it's always you. 
So it it a blessing in disguise, but it's 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 not something we can live very long. In Buddhism, what they say, uh, you get these deep states of jhana, which are concentrated states, transcendent states. You can only live in those states up to seven days. If you stay any longer, you will die. So it leads me to believe that, that the main state would be this state, and that's where the evolution comes in. We evolve through our meditation practice and the Dharma to become mature, accepting human beings. And we have these little transcendence experiences to allow us to experience the options that are available to us. So we never get caught in the same way we did before. When somebody says, this is how it has to be, you know at this point that it's not the way it has to be. It's what you've decided it should be. That kind of thing. Is that at all helpful? Yes. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. Oh, my neck got stiff. It's, it's this relative reality, you see? Nothing but pain and suffering. Yes? First off, I've heard about you as a crazy cat lady, and I applaud you for that. <laughs> I I, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I appreciate that you do that. Yes. But my question is. I I wish they did. Yeah, they're cats, exactly. Um, turn postal <laughs> and take everybody out. <laughs> yes, uh, really a good point. And, and that's one of the side effects of meditation is that you become sensitive and raw. And, and even the small things turn out to be the big things. Uh, I'm fond of telling this story of uh, uh, years ago, uh, Zen Center of Los Angeles had a retreat and we were going to have a Buddhist Peace Fellowship meeting after the retreat. I was not on the retreat. And so five of the fellows who were on the retreat and myself went to a fast food restaurant to get a little food before we started our meeting. And standing in line were these five guys looking at the menu, and none of them could decide what they wanted because they saw the cause and consequence of every decision they were about to make. And myself, on the other hand, didn't see any of that and just ordered. And they were still contemplating by the time I got my food. So... One of the downsides of this stuff is we become aware of so much more and we feel so many more things. And we don't know how to relate to that, if we should allow it to happen, if we should uh, build those walls again and guard ourselves because we don't want to be taken advantage of and we don't want to be hurt. The Vipassana people would say, uh, who gets hurt? Who are you really? Who's the person that feels this? You see? And then you would say, I wonder who feels this. If I'm simply a process or the five skandhas or mind and body or the 32 parts of the body, if I'm all these things that are in process and changing all the time, who is it that feels hurt? Well, it turns out it's the ego. It's the ego because the ego is starting to lose its hold, its mastery over you. And it won't go quietly or easily. It will fight you every inch of the way. So you have to be very compassionate with yourself, very kind with yourself, assuring the ego that you're not going to get rid of her. She's an important part of your life, always has been and always will be. You need her to be there so you can continue to exist. But now in your, in your dialogue with your ego, you say, you know, you've been master for a long time, I'd rather you just be one of the tools I use to exist in the world and experience it in a skillful way. 
Do you think we could work something out? You know, as you're talking to your ego and self. And, and, and sooner or later, the ego feels more and more comfortable because it realizes you're not trying to kill it. You're simply trying to modify the way you use it and relate to it. But it takes time, and it's very abstract, what I just said. But at the end of, at the end of this you know, turmoil or this, these issues, you'll find resolution. It'll be fine, and you'll still have an ego. It'll still do its job. But now, what you'll have that you didn't before is a choice. You will choose to either agree with the ego or not. Should I be more generous or less generous? And then you, and then you choose. Well, why should I be generous at all? And the Vipassana person might say, because I have far too much greed. And the more generosity I practice, the less greed I'll have. It has nothing to do with the people I'm either tipping or giving money to. It's always about me. And the ego goes, yes, it is. <laughs> so so it's, it's an interesting battle. And, and everyone who's started this path has gone there. And sometimes you feel like you're going insane. You know? So instead of going to that four-day meditation retreat, go to the spa. Let them massage you with hot rocks and oil. You know? And just take a break. This is hard work. And we get to places where we, we think we're going nuts or want to take somebody out. And then, <laughs> and then the next day, everything is fine. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Good. Okay, well, we've come to the end of another uh, talk. Thank you so much for uh, showing up. And uh, I think we need a little loving kindness meditation so we can take it with us into the streets of Los Angeles.